So we are starting tonight on page bottom of page 55 on the regular or ordinary officers of the local church, which include pastors and deacons. So we're going to start here with pastors, and we'll probably spend much of the night on these. Uh, may not even get to uh, deacons this evening. But pastors, and you can see that I've got three names, pastors, elders, and bishops. Uh, because those three terms are used synonymously in the Christian scriptures. Uh, they are not to be thought of as separate offices within the life of the church, even though several denominations do uh, ascribe different functions and, and hierarchies of power uh, to these three terms. Okay, so come and so we're in, in remember in Ephesians 4.11, uh, we, we, uh, we, we saw that God gave first apostles and then prophets and then evangelists, then pastors and other teachers. So we're in the pastors and other teachers. Um, and so pastors here specifically of all the ecclesiastical functions, uh, detailed in the New Testament epistles. Uh, this is the one we get overwhelmingly more than any other. So this is the, this is the primary office of the uh, local church. And so we're going to spend a bit of time talking about that. A lot of descriptions about his character, about his function within the church, because he's set apart politically as having oversight over the church. And because we need guidance in the evaluation and selection of men to this all-important office. Okay, And so we want to talk firstly here about the qualifications of being a pastor elder, or bishop, okay? And first, uh, oftentimes on the list here, is uh, what is sometimes called the call to ministry. Um, this has long been thought of as a, as a, as a, as a primary condition uh, for the pastorate. Certainly, we wouldn't want to promote someone to pastor who didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, but we recognize that in, in 1 Timothy, uh, it says here, if a, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. These are the qualifications he must have. So it's actually, you know, the, the desire actually comes before the list of qualifications. It isn't the first of the qualifications, but rather it's if somebody wants to be a pastor, these are the things he must be. Okay. Uh, but I do want to say something about the call to ministry because it has enjoyed such a significant, uh, you know, significant favor in the uh, the history of the church, um, and I want to make sure that uh, we we don't say too little about about uh, uh, about this, uh, but not too much either. Okay, so some several cautionary factors. One, nowhere does the idea of a call to ministry appear in the biblical record as a qualification for pastoral ministry. Now, appeal is often made, I say here to 1 Timothy 3, 1, but we should recognize that that is not a, the first of the qualifications, but it actually is, is a, is a, is a precedent here. Uh, so what, what happens is if you desire it, this is what you have to be. So if a man sets his heart on the office of a pastor, then the church will evaluate him based on the verses that follow, verses 2 to 7. Secondly, I say here, never does the word call appear in the biblical record concerning a pastor. Now, certainly God does use means to cultivate desires for pastoral ministry in a man and to give him gifts. Most certainly does 
send out laborers and make overseers. He gives pastors to the church. Um, and Paul and others uh, suggested that, you know, even before uh, they were believers, God was actually shaping them for the task. Okay, and so a recognition of this, I think, is valuable. But the idea of a call, I think, uh, communicates the idea of revelation. We want to make sure that we don't confuse uh, uh, preparation, God's providential preparation of a man for ministry, with a an audible, or perhaps even worse, an inaudible prompting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to uh, the pastoral office. There doesn't seem to be any reason uh, to, to think in those terms. In fact, that term call is used really of, of, of two things in Scripture. One, one is called to be a Christian. Okay, In New Testament, that's the dominant usage. The, in fact, this is the word that's used for election, right? To call or to elect. Um, and so the, the overwhelmingly majority use here is this supernatural work of God to call one to salvation, or uh, the, the term is also used of prophets in the Old Testament, which did, in fact, get a an audible, oftentimes, off audible call from God to let them know that they're going to be in. The, in the prophetic, uh, in the prophetic ministry. But never do you see anything like that for, uh, the church. So I, I list here, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uses for this term call, uh, throughout, uh, the New Testament. But what is strikingly absent is any demonstrable New Testament use of this term, uh, to, uh, to, to communicate the idea of a mystical or audible or revelatory call to ministry. And it's important, I think, that we not insist that this kind of call uh, be present in order to evaluate a person. Uh, so, so the idea of a, of a call, I have something of a little bit more dim view. Now, let me qualify that. Church certainly does well to seek a pastoral candidate who wants it. Someone who's sober has a sense of resolve and a sense of manifest destiny. He's not just dabbling, uh, but is committed to what he's doing. I mean, that that's yep. something that you're going to, you know, anytime you, you're involved in the hiring process, right? You're looking for those kinds of things. And no less so for a pastor, which is the most important job in the world in some ways, okay? Uh, so so we should make sure that someone has a, a sense of manifest destiny, has a resolve uh, to uh, to to commit himself to the long term. Um, uh, but this quest for audible or mystical calls is probably ill-conceived uh, and may even distract a church uh, from pursuing legitimate concerns and qualifications that are detailed in Scripture. I always find it interesting that when I go to, a, to an ordination council, usually there's some sort of a question about the, the uh, testimony and call to ministry of a of a potential candidate, but very rarely do I actually hear too many questions about the qualifications for ministry here in First Timothy three and Titus one. So uh, I think it's 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 those are the things that we should be concerned about, and less this idea of a call that had grown to have a life bigger uh, than the scriptures I think afford it. 
Do any questions about this? About this? Okay. Well, let's move then to the biblical qualifications. So we've got two lists of these. One in 1 Timothy 3, the other in Titus chapter 1. So I just want to read those sections here, and then we'll go through them one by one in the, uh, in the, in, in the order that they appear in these texts. Okay, so uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 7, the overseer, the bishop, depending on what translation you have, is to be a, above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see to it that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Here's the explanation, because if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the larger family, the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he might become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Okay. Then Titus 1, 6 to 9 gives us a very similar list, but there's a couple of things left off, a few others that are added that uh, will com- uh, contribute to our discussion. Some of them are actually use different words, so it gives us a good sense of what they mean. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe, we're going to have to talk about that one, and not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be positively hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Finally, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So let's go one by one and see if we can get a sense of the things that God finds most important for a pastor. And again, it's, this is it's, it's one of those things, you know, I've, I've, I've done a, a bit of interim work, you know, uh, being with churches that are looking for a new pastor. And I think oftentimes there's a lot of things on the list of things we want for a pastor that come ahead of these. In fact, oftentimes these don't, don't even make the list sometimes in, in, you know, in, in pulpit committees. And so, you know, someday, uh, you may be in a situation, uh, where you're going to be, you know, looking for a new pastor, uh, whether church you're in or you know perhaps you'll move on sometime and these are the things that god prioritizes these these are the most important you don't get these right it doesn't really matter how young or energetic or how many good ideas he has or how good he is with you know with with older people or children or whatever the case may be these are the most important and so i think it's important that we go through these uh in order okay so firstly on both lists Above reproach or blameless. And this is a summary qualification, I think. And, 
It denotes a long-standing pattern of good behavior that renders him free from legitimate accusation. And I think that's, that's, that's the key here. The long-standing pattern. In fact, this is a, this is a phrase that's, I'm going to sort of apply to a lot of these. Um, it's not just that he can, you know, put on a good face for, you know, for the, uh, for the, for the interview. But that he's got a, a long-standing pattern, which demands then that you've got to make inquiries about his previous ministries uh, and uh, his his uh, his conduct with his family and such to find out whether these things are true. So above reproach means that he's he's got a long reputation for good. Uh, it's easy to lose one's reputation. You can lose your reputation in in a moment. But this term says, okay, this is, this is someone who has spent a long time building his reputation. And a lot of these are going to fit together, right? He's not a new convert. He's not a novice. And that all sort of fits together here because you don't want to find someone who's a brand new convert who has not been tried. We want someone who's got some sort of a reputation already with him for good. Okay. And then, and this, effectively is something that can be applied to all the rest of these. He is above reproach with respect to his wife. He's above reproach with respect to his children. He's above respect, above reproach with respect to, to the way he entertains people in his house and so, so on and so forth. So this is a, a summary adjective, if I may, as to the expectations God has. So above reproach. Faithful to his wife, here's where we're going to have our, our longest stop perhaps tonight, uh, because there's quite a bit of debate as to what this means. The term here is, uh, is a, a one woman man, literally. And so there's been a lot of debate as to exactly what that means, but I've defined it here, as you can see here. And for some reason, it's got really tiny font, but uh, a long standing pattern here of exclusive fidelity to his wife. Okay. So what does it mean to be a one-woman man? Well, open up your commentary and you, commentaries and you'll find as many answers as you have commentaries almost. Um, there's probably, there's probably four clusters of answers to this question. Let's see if I can walk through them and see, uh, what, uh, what we should understand this to mean. Firstly, I think it's obvious before we move to some of the more controversial aspects of, of this discussion, that the pastoral candidate has to be a man and may not be homosexual, right? You know, the syntax here, a one-woman man means he's a man and he's got a woman. There's no room here for a one-spouse spouse or a one-man woman or a one-man man. And that's, none of those work, okay? I don't think that's the point of this passage, <coughs> but at the end of the day, uh, this is the only scenario that works, a monogamous man, okay? Now, this is, the, the next the next point here, I think, is, uh, is one that we typically have to grapple with here in Protestant life, but if you happen to have, any sort of Eastern Orthodox connections here. Uh, this is, this is an understanding here that was, uh, was part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And 
which is a fairly substantial uh, group of, of Christians, at least in name. And there are probably some that are certainly believers, not Protestant, uh, but uh, because of their longstanding rift with the Roman Catholic Church, we actually find that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they sometimes take the opposite position just to be cantankerous, if I can put it that way. And and so what we actually have in the Eastern Orthodox Church, whereas in the Western Church, a priest could not be married, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, he must be married. So it's a, it's a complete opposite here in Eastern Orthodoxy. And so this, this is their understanding of this passage. He must be a one woman man. So it's not just if he's married, he's got to be a one woman man, but he must be a one woman man if he's going to be a pastor. So you've got to be married and you've got to be married to one woman. And in fact, in, in some expressions of Eastern Orthodoxy, you can never marry a second wife, even if your first wife dies, right? Because you're a one-woman man, period. So you can't even move on to a second woman if your first wife dies, okay? And so again, this doesn't really show up too much in uh, in Protestant life, but it is the uh, position of Eastern Orthodoxy. But this doesn't seem to be uh, the emphasis here. The emphasis throughout is that of proven character. It's not the superiority of the married to the unmarried state, nor when we get a little bit further along, does, is there requirement that his children must, you know, must toe the line. Doesn't mean he must have children. I think probably the point here is that if he is married, he's got to be a one woman man. And if he has children, they have to be obedient. Okay, and we certainly don't want to uh, conclude that there is that there is superiority assigned to those who are married or who have children. Now, I will say, practically speaking, you know, this is just sort of an aside here; it's not in the notes. Uh, that uh, in in general, I think a married man uh, probably is a is a w- more well rounded. Uh, I don't know too many single pastors. There are some. Uh, I, but I don't think this passage uh, precludes the idea, uh, but it does seem to be the normal pattern that God has uh, for people. And uh, so it, it and, and since he's going to be dealing a lot with uh, marriage, marriage situations, I think there is some some real value in choosing someone who is married. But I don't think that this passage requires it. So let's move on then to some of the more some of the some of the controversy and i'm going to give two polar positions and actually i'm going to take one that's somewhere in between i say the broadest interpretation of this phrase one woman man is that it merely prohibits polygamy okay you can't have three wives at the same time um and doesn't speak to divorce at all a pastor has simply needs to be Monogamous, Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology. This is not to say that those who hold this view are fine with people who divorces, divorce and marriage, remarry, you know, multiple times because the, 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 the requirement of managing one's household well and having a good reputation still applies. But they argue that the phrase ultimately is silent concerning 
the idea of divorce or remarriage. Deals only with a local problem in Ephesus and other polygamous cultures. In fact, I I remember when I I went over to uh, Tanzania with uh, Rob Howell when he had first gotten over there just a couple of years in. And he had he had gathered a group of believers together, some of which he had led to the Lord personally, and they wanted to form a church. And one of the problems they had is they all all, all the potential members were polygamous. They had multiple wives, which is of course acceptable in 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 Tanzanian culture. And it really created something of a of a of a conundrum for uh, for them. Um, moving forward, but they, they, they ultimately did end up being able to find some folks, uh, in the church who had only a, a single wife and uh, were able to, to work with those. But, but it was, but it was, it was a conundrum up front because this is, this is clearly a minimum interpretation here. You can only have one wife. Uh, you can't have multiple wives at the same time. But I say standing against this interpretation, is the complete absence of any other indication of problems with polygamy in the New Church, New Testament Church. The universal appeal of the rest of this section of Scripture, it's not just a local set of qualifications, it's a broad set of qualifications for the church in every age and every culture. And the fact that the rest of the items on the list deal with a candidate's character, not to his life situations. Okay. Um, and so, and so it's, it seems that the concern is one of faithfulness, not so much uh, the, the, uh, the number of wives. Okay. Now, the narrowest interpretation of this phrase is that to be qualified for pastoral ministry, a man must never have divorced or at the very minimum must never have remarried after his divorce because then he would have had two wives. He would not be a one-woman man. He would be a two or three or however many-woman man. Some further stipulate, borrowing from the language of Leviticus, that his wife, likewise, must never have been divorced or committed fornication of any kind. This was a requirement of priests in the Old Testament. So not only did the man have to be a one-woman man, but his wife, also had to be a one-man woman. So she has to have a squeaky clean uh, record in terms of her relationships with other men. I say in favor of this understanding is this Old Testament precedent, firstly. Priests, it's very clear in Leviticus that a priest could only have ever had one wife and furthermore that his, his wife could only ever have had one husband. Secondly, the fact that leaders are held to a stricter standard uh, than other church members. So it's, it's, it's not a requirement for membership in the church. But oftentimes we find that the requirements for leadership are more stringent than for membership. And thirdly, the sad reality that the consequence of sin frequently does persist after forgiveness is granted, you know, and I think this is a very important thing for us to recognize that uh, just because a person says I'm sorry and seeks forgiveness does not mean he must automatically be restored to his office or his place of privilege. And one that's sort of obvious here is if, you know, if somebody is, you know, 
you know, is, 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 is accused and, and, you know, arrested and perhaps incarcerated for some sort of a sexual crime, particularly with minors. Uh, he, he gets put on a sexual registry list. And, you know, just because he's forgiven does not mean he has all of the same prerogatives and rights and privileges in the church that anybody does. Okay. You know, any church is going to be wise to make sure that there are certain ministries that those individuals are, is never a part of. You know, they, they can't, they can't be part of junior church and Awana and things like that because of their track record. And, and we, we have to recognize that there are, there are some sins which have a stain that persists for a very, 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 very long time. And so many will argue that the, this, 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 this prohibition here is an absolute one. Anyone who's ever had a divorce, even if that person had a divorce 30 years prior, before they even got converted, that they're excluded because this, this is a very high standard that God has. Okay. Um, and so, so this, this person has to be blameless, absolutely blameless and have a perfect reputation with respect, uh, to, to women. Okay. This is a, this is the conservative position. It's perhaps we might say the safest position. I'm not completely sure that that's, uh, that, 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 that Paul intended to be quite that stringent in what he said. So I've got a mediating position here. A man must have an established long-standing pattern of exclusive fidelity to his wife in order to qualify for the pastoral office. And if you look at the NIV updated edition, it's pretty clear that that's what they intend. This position allows a man into pastoral ministry who, in the distant past and or prior to conversion, engaged in some sort of sexual or marital sins, but afterward, having repented, after considerable time, because he can't be a novice, He's got to have a long-standing reputation. Has established a reputation of faithfulness, ironclad faithfulness to his wife, and sound management of his family. And uh, I've come down on this position. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is where I stand here. And I think standing in favor of this understanding are two things. One, the pattern of the passage here deals with character and reputation, not specific sins. And then specifically, there's a New Testament precedent after a period of testing of welcoming even the vilest of sinners to ministerial roles. And, you know, you know, our, our example here is Paul, uh, who before he got saved had a terrible habit of murdering Christians. And yet, he was rehabituated, you know, rehabilitated over the course of years until he has an ironclad reputation for faithfulness, and uh, and he's he's promoted really to the highest of offices, and and appointed to be an apostle. So, um, my my inclination here is to say that that uh, uh, you know a, a an incident of of infidelity uh, does not automatically prohibit a man from office permanently 
but it is certainly a great strike against anyone who would ever pursue the ministry. And so I say here, it may be the safer uh, position, more conservative position to say nobody who's ever been divorced ever can be a pastor. And uh, if you take that position, and I don't think your church does, but I'm actually not completely sure. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't inquire, but, uh, uh, but uh, um, uh, so, so I, so I, I, I say this carefully here. Uh, it may be the safer position. I don't think it's the one that is absolutely required in scripture. Okay. Uh, so any thoughts on that? Any follow up with that? Concerns? Retorts? I've got a question, Dr. Yeah. Snowberger. So I know there's not going to be a, a magic number. Um, but, uh, if there is that indiscretion with the pastor, I, I, I mean, then, I mean, what, what, what are we talking about? Is that 15 years, 20 years? Again, I, I know it's, it would be hard to put some kind of a number on that, but just yeah. thoughts there. Yeah. I just, I, I, th- I think probably the, the issue comes down to his reputation and, and it may be different for different people and different circumstances. Right. Uh, if it, if it ended up being some sort of high profile public thing that soiled that person's reputation, sometimes that reputation is soiled forever. Uh, there's just no way you are going to get people to trust the man, much less outsiders to be able to trust the man. And mm-hmm. so the, it, it may be, it may be a forever for some, for some mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really just a, a question of, of, of wisdom. I'm thinking years, many years. Mm-hmm. And then of course it does depend on the, uh, the nature of the indiscretion. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, 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 uh, that's something that, that comes into the, uh, into the question as well. Mm-hmm. So some, some indiscretions are worse than others, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've, I've seen some few couple situations where the wife, and there's always two sides to a story, but the wife abandons the, the family, the husband and the kids. And, you know, that might be something as well where it doesn't need as much time, I would think. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair thought. In fact, I, you know, I was very close to a situation like that just a few years ago uh, in Ohio. Um, and, and I think, I think you're right. Um, I think we, we still have to look at that man and say he didn't have his house in order, obviously. Uh, if he, if he, the, the fact that he lost his wife because she abandoned him to some degree, he did not have his house in order. Now you might be able to say it wasn't his fault or it wasn't very much his fault. Um, and you could be correct in that. And, and perhaps that would lead then to a, shorter time before before rehabilitation is complete uh i don't think that somebody like that should just immediately persist in ministry it seems like they at least have to have some sort of hiatus uh where they've got to get their affairs in order uh, before they can qualify as a pastor okay yeah, I mean, I guess it could be a position where the uh, pastor's in residence and the wife runs away, too. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I say, I'm dealing with a situation that is very, very much like that took place here just a couple of years ago, uh, in Ohio, uh, not very far from, not very far from us. And, uh, there, there was quite a question that was, was raised. Can this man continue as pastor? How long before he can be restored? Can he go somewhere else and pastor? Because, you know, where, where, where his reputation hasn't been damaged. And that, that, those are, those are questions that swirl about. And I'm not sure I can give you a clean, absolute answer that works for every situation. But I think you are, you are correct that someone in that situation probably does not have to wait as long to be restored. Uh, to a position, a, a pastoral position, because he did not, you know, he didn't really do anything wrong, except he did, he did fail to manage his family. Okay. Most of the rest of these will go quicker, <laughs> uh, but temperate, self-controlled, prudent, I put these together because I think they end up being more or less synonyms. And this means here that he is marked by patterns of judgment. He's clear-headed. He's reserved. I like that word. I just love that word uh, to describe someone who's a pastor. He's reserved. Uh, he's he's not hot-headed. He's not going to fly off the handle. Reserved, I think, is just a, a great word to describe a, a quality pastor. Even keeled having a cultivated habit of not being reactionary or of speaking and acting without forethought. Uh, and this, this is near the top of both lists because I think it's, it's really, really important here. Um, and I think we're going to see that you've got the opposite that's going to show up in a few, in a, in a, in a few moments here, not being pugnacious, not being quick tempered. So it's not only a, a positive, but also the negative uh, that come together. Okay. Respectable, uh, perhaps a word here that would, would fit here is dignified. Um, that is able to act appropriately in a dignified manner across a wide range of circumstances. You know, I remember back when I, way back when I, my first year of college, uh, we, uh, had to read this book on being cultured and a whole bunch of college freshman reading on how to be cultured <laughs> you know it didn't doesn't go over real well but i i do remember it because i think it 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 spoke to me you know you if you're going to be a pastor you need to learn to be at ease in a lot of different situations whether you're talking about you know wealthy people poor people you know work a day Blue collar workers, white collar workers. So someone who can be, who can hold his own and be respectable and dignified and legitimately earn people's approval. And I put that, of course, in italics because we recognize that there is in scripture an illegitimate way that pastors can gain people's approval. But there are, there are certain things that we can do to make sure that people respect us and don't just blow us off because we can't we, we can't manage uh to to be uh re, to act respectably in a given context here so respectability i think is here 
uh, hospitable, a lover of strangers. There are actually a number of these, of these, these words that start out lover of. And this one is a lover of strangers, literally. Uh, it's translated, most of your translations, uh, hospitable. Willing to make personal sacrifices to accommodate people's needs, especially those who can't reciprocate, right? People who can't give, give back. Uh, so here's a person who is willing to give, who's willing to make personal sacrifices to meet people's needs, especially people who will never be able to, you know, recoup what he gave. And, uh, that's a, that's a self-sacrificial, uh, kind of a person. Holding fast to the faithful word next and able to teach, ex- exhort and refute. This is, uh, this is the only, this, this is the only skill set that appears on the list. Every one of these is a character quality except for this one. This is what your one set of skills that is requisite of a pastor. He needs to hold fast the faithful word. That is, he needs to know it. He needs to believe it. And then he has to be able to teach it. Okay. Now, as we, as we look down the list, when we, when we get to the list of requirements for a deacon, he has to hold fast the faithful word, but there's nothing here about being able to teach it. So a deacon needs to believe well, but he does not need to be a teacher because he's a, he's a servant of the church. He does not have to be a teacher, but a pastor does. So this is the one skill set he has. And I think perhaps tied in with this skill set of being able to teach is also this apologetic skill. He's able to exhort and refute. That is that he can answer questions and, you know, and, and, and persuade people who are opposed to him. Pastors are going to be set into those kinds of situations all the time, not only within the life of the church, but also in the, in, 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 in the evangelistic task. And so he's got to be an apologist, someone who is able to articulate the truth well, and then also be able to follow up with questions, you know, you know, so he can, he can have a Q and A and can answer the questions. And, and I think this is, this is, this is an area where I think, uh, you can really quiz the pastor to find out whether he meets the qualifications, uh, it, it, after, you know, after his, his test run with a, a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, ask some questions, ask some really hard questions to see how he answers. And sometimes he, he says he's got to answer some of the questions. Sometimes he's got to say, I don't know. I'll look it up for you. Um, but, but always be able to handle the, the pressure, the tension of a Q and A session. Okay, right. So he's got to be able to hold fast the faithful word, believe it, be able to teach it, and then answer questions about it in a persuasive way. Okay, so this is this is the skill set that is requisite of a pastor, and you should be able to uh, 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 discern this uh, by listening and interacting with it. Not given to drunkenness, another one on the list here, or not addicted to wine, literally probably is not an absolute ban of alcohol because a couple of chapters later, uh, we actually find that Paul recommends to Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Now, this is probably not here, you know, consumption of large amounts of alcohol, but rather enough alcohol uh, to purify 
foul water that was available to him. Probably more the the emphasis here than a mere caution is a, a caution against drunkenness, inebriation, probably more than that, though, regular attention to habit-forming substances and activities, okay? So I think it includes here alcohol, uh, drugs, recreational drugs, or illegal ones. And then I think also any sort of addiction that is going to keep that person away from the task. It can be as simple, I think. I think I think I would even include on the list here someone who's just addicted to golf or to video games. Someone who just can't pull themselves away because a person like that is eventually going to have real problems in the pastorate. Okay, so it's 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 not just uh, it's it, it's any sort of substance, liquid, food, or activity that is going to keep that person from being able uh, to be uh, have his wits about him and be able to be there uh, for the task of the of the, of, the, of the ministry. Okay, any questions on that one here? Next is not violent or pugnacious, which is related to that earlier idea of temperance and self-control. This one stated negatively. But particularly here is the realm of anger. A pastor should be disinclined to violence. He's not easily angered and very unlikely to blow up. Okay, And this is something that you can find out about him usually pretty easily. Uh, ask anyone who's close to him. Uh, someone who is an angry man can't hold it bottled up inside for very long. So, uh, so discover whether this is the case because an angry man is never going to succeed in pastoral ministry. He's got to be peaceable and gentle. So the idea of patient, gracious, courteous, you know, observe how he treats older women in the church. You know, that, that's going to tell you a lot about a person. You know, is he patient? Is he gracious? Is he courteous? And does he tend to diffuse strife or engender strife? Okay, so, you know, when, when the question up comes up about masks in the vestibule, you know, is he the one who's wading in with the loudest arguments here? You know, that that's not a peaceable or gentle person, right? He's He's one who actually should diffuse rather than ramp up, uh, you know, topics of that nature. Next, not self-willed, quarrelsome, or overbearing. So not on so insistent on his own rights that he becomes either irritable or imperious, which is, you know, depending on your personality, are the two dominant expressions of selfishness, right? Okay, some selfish people become irritable, introverted, and whiny. Others become aloof and heavy-handed. And this is what uh, uh, Paul is saying, don't be this way. If a person is this way, he's not going to be a good candidate for pastor. Not a lover of money. Um, Doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay him. And not that he doesn't deserve to pay him. Doesn't mean he can't even be rich. Uh, But 
he should not be pursuing inordinate gain and probably not dishonest, but inordinate. He just, he just wants to get wealthy on this. So he's not materialistic. He's not interested in personal wealth. Irrespective of whether he has money or doesn't have money is that it's just not something that takes up much of his thought. Paul's already stipulated, I say here, that pastors have a right to make their living from the gospel. And so this can't mean that they should refuse remuneration, but it means that pastors shouldn't hold tightly to their rights, hoard their resources, or aspire to personal wealth. And you may say, well, that's impossible for pastors because they don't make very much. Well, this, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't restricted to people who are rich. It can be very poor people who are who are fixated on wealth and and their money so it it it's it's not something that's limited to wealthy people he's he's not he's not prohibiting wealthy people he's 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 prohibiting people who are obsessed with accumulation and that's that's the concern here next he manages his own house well and this may include fiscal responsibility. Um, I don't think that's the primary concern that Paul has, but it's probably part of it, right? Uh, so he's he's got to keep his house in order. Probably includes that he keeps his house financially in order. Ask whether he's got debts stacked up. Um, I think that's a legitimate question to ask because he's got to have some fiscal responsibility. But I think primarily... The concern here is control over the behavior of those who are in his house. And so we have this explanation that his children obey in a respectful way. Okay. Um, and uh, so, and, and I think that really the, uh, the respectful way is, is doesn't necessarily apply to the the children's obedience, that they have to be respectful as they obey. But actually, he needs to be respect respectful as he commands obedience from his children. So he has to be a good parent. Okay. Titus uh, makes his words even stronger. And this is where we're going to have another, you know, aside here, a question that needs to be answered here. Titus goes further and stipulates that the children of this man must believe and not be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So the question here that comes up, does this mean that a pastor's children have to be Christians? Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and the, sort of the, 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 the details of the question here, if no person can guarantee the election of his children, how can this be a qualification for being a pastor? Well, I say here that the fact in, that in Titus 1-6, we find that a pastor must have children having faith or faithfulness does not necessarily mean that his children must be believers. The qualification instead demands that the pastor control the behavior of his children living at home, those who are in his household, so that they're not openly rebellious or incorrigible, and that's the remark that uh, that Titus makes, right? He he can't be accused of wildness or dissipation or rebellion. Okay, and, and I like the words of the Holman Christian Standard Bible: "A pastor must have faithful children, 
That is the kind of children that toe the line. Okay. Not perfectly, of course, but children that toe the line. Um, I, I'm really disinclined to think, uh, that, that Paul would require a pastor to have Christians as children, particularly in view of the fact that oftentimes the children are quite young, right? I mean, if you've got a, a pastor with a three-year-old, does that mean he's not qualified? Because that child's not a believer yet. Uh, no, I don't think that's the point here. That twelve, that three-year-old does need to be a well-disciplined three-year-old. Doesn't mean he can't be a yeah, rambunctious kid, but he needs to have some discipline surrounding him. You have to be a good parent to this three-year-old. Okay. Um, and so he's got that, that, and I think that that works its way all the way up. Um, and, uh, so even a, like a teenager who might say, you know, I, I don't know that I buy into the Christian faith, but I'm going to live in such a way that doesn't bring disrepute to my family and to the church. Uh, so I don't think it's a statement here that they have to be saved, but rather that they need to toe the line with respect to their behavior. And again, I think that the, the, the qualification is specifically to those who are within his household. So if a child get, grows up, leaves home, and then begins living a wild life or uh, a, a licentious life, I don't think that that is, is something that... Uh, necessarily disqualifies a man from ministry any questions on that one that one that one because of the wording that shows up in titus uh, that can be uh at least some point of some some would some would say you know kids have to be saved but i think that creates a lot of difficulty in, in trying trying to implement it yes question linda plus we know that um it's god who does the saving so yeah right yeah right yeah, so you can't control who gets saved. You should be able to control whether your child is towing the line in terms of his behavior. And if you can't handle that, and, and that's the point, right, of the passage, because if you can't handle your kid, you're not going to be able to hand, handle a whole church full of, you know, sometimes immature people, right? <laughs> so so that and that's the point that's made, yes. Next, he cannot be a recent convert. We've come back to this one already a few times here because elevating someone quickly, one doesn't give us a chance to discern his, his reputation. But then also, Paul tells us, this tends to pride. You take a man and elevate him too quickly, uh, this can, this can play tricks with his mind and cause him to fall into pride. Um, and so you need, you need time uh, for a man to develop uh, in order to be a pastor. I know there are exceptions that litter the history of the church of very young men who uh, were, were adequate pastors. Um, but I think in general, you generally want someone uh, who has years at least of Christian experience. Um, and sometimes someone who is very young can be wise beyond his years because he has a long Christian experience, even though he may not be particularly old yet. So, uh, again, you know, coming back to Mark's question earlier, well, how old? Uh, how, how many years? I don't know that you can you can put a you can you can quantify it here. 
but uh, hopefully you, it's, it's, it's really the maturity of the person that is in view, not so much, you know, counting six, five, eight years. It, I don't think that's the, that's the point. He's also got to have a good reputation outside the church. So he not only has to have a good church face, but must have a good testimony in the unbelieving community as well, among his neighbors. And the reason for this is because he's got to do the work of an evangelist and be able to answer the questions, give a good answer with gentleness to those who are outside the church. Okay, That's part of his task. Okay, And if he has earned only scorn from those he has come into contact with outside the church, he's going to have a real difficult time uh, doing the work of an evangelist. And then a lover of good. Here's another one of these lover uh, phrases here uh, that uh, Paul is fond of. Pa- uh, pastors are not to be lovers of money, we find, but are to be lovers of strangers, hospitable. And here, lovers of good. Now, this is probably not a reference to moral good, per se, that he is a righteous person, but probably has more the idea of civic good. As seen in the wealth of its you, the term, the, the, this term is used, uh, frequently in Aristotle, Philo, and others to be the idea of being a good neighbor and of being a good citizen. Okay. Uh, so it's not just that he's morally good and righteous. He needs to be those, of course, but I don't think that's the, 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 uh, the emphasis of this term. He needs to be good in terms of, of his civic reputation. He needs to be a good neighbor a good worker, a good citizen, a good member of society. So a lover of good. Upright and holy, and here we are moving to moral good, right? Conformity to a moral or ethical standard established by God for conduct uh, towards both God and people. And then finally, disciplined, which is paired with self-control in Titus. Uh, Discipline involves an ability to stay on task, and to self-consciously restrain one's reactions uh, to impulse. Okay, so uh, so again, this again, this, this sort of pairs with one of those what we looked at earlier here uh, that he has to be temperate, not easily angered, self-controlled, clear-headed, reserved, even-keeled. I think it's sort of wrapped up in this term, uh, disciplined. Okay, any questions on these? Yes, sir. yes, ma'am. You're, you're muted. This, this is going back to the first thing about the pastor has got uh-huh. to, be able to manage his family. Yeah. Um, and, and it said financially managing the children. Well, when we're going back to the, the pastor that the wife takes off and leaves him, uh-huh. what could he have done is to avoid that? Cause it seems like, you know, if he's going to lock her up, then he doesn't, you know, cancels out one of the other qualifications. Right. I, I think sometime, sometimes these are not necessarily that he's necessarily done anything wrong. Okay. But he has brought into question his ability to carry out the pastoral task, if I can put it that way. And sometimes it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It's just that you brought into question your ability to do the things that God requires. Um, you know, if 
you know, if someone's wife runs off, you know, say my wife runs off, um, and you say, well, from what we can tell, he didn't do anything wrong, but you know how, how it is in, in most situations like that, there's always this question mark. Well, me. Never seen him do anything to for her to run off, but you know it usually takes two to tangle, right? So, so usually it's 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 rarely possible to assign one hundred percent blame uh, for a situation like that to one party or the other. And in any case, the the seed of doubt is is sown, and I think for that reason he's going to have trouble functioning uh, as a pastor. And so it's not so much that he necessarily did something wrong, but it's more of a wait and see. We don't know whether he's done something wrong. And until we are more certain because he's rebuilt his reputation, we're going to, we're, we're just going to take a wait and see kind of a, of, of a stance uh, towards that individual. At least give him a sabbatical, you know, get, give him some time off to get himself in order. And to demonstrate that, in fact, he is in control of his family and uh, of of his of his circumstances and of, of his life situation. Uh, so, so I, I I don't know if that that helps to answer the question. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think we probably ought to cut it off here. Uh, although we've, we've, we're starting to fall behind here. Uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll cut it off here because we've hit eight o'clock and, uh, we will, uh, pick this up next week. Um, so we meet one more week and then we have a week off for, uh, for spring break. So next week we will meet, but then the following week we won't. Okay. So unless there's any final questions, I'll let you go for the evening.